All right, so we are looking at the book of Jude. Hopefully you have the notes in front of you. It has the, the text I'm going, to be I'm going to be reading from. Uh, and Jude was probably, almost definitely, the brother of Jesus. And here's where we get that from. Uh, the name Jude is a shortened form of the, ver of, the, of the name Judas, which is a very popular name in the first century because of two reasons. The tribe of Judah, which is the, Jew, the, the uh, tribe of Israel that Jesus was born in. This was a time of great patriotism when Jesus was born, first century Israel. And so uh, traditional names were very popular again. Uh, you know, you, if you were a good patriotic Israelite, you would name your son Judah or Benjamin or Asher or uh, Reuben <laughs> instead of Demetrius or some Roman sounding name. Uh, there was also about a hundred years before Jesus the Maccabees. If you ever want, if you're into history, or if you don't know you're into history but you want to become into history, just get on the internet and study the Maccabees sometime. It's one of those fascinating stories that they ought to make a movie out of. Judas Maccabeus was the leader of this family, the Maccabees, who led Israel in this unexpected, unbelievable upset of their enemies so they could have independence for about a hundred years. Uh, by the way, that's where we get where the Jews get the, the holiday Hanukkah from was during that time. So tribe of Judah, Judas Maccabeus made this a popular name. This guy, Jude, lists himself as a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. He wouldn't say he was the brother of James if James was just the guy who, you know, fed your camel or the guy, the guy who swept the streets. You list things like that if that's a famous person. In the, in the early church, there were only two famous, two famous Jameses. One was the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and he died long before this was written. The other was the brother of Jesus. And so we assume that Jude was the brother of Jesus also. Two, that brings up two noteworthy things. Isn't it interesting then that Jesus had a brother named Judas? And secondly, isn't it interesting that Jude calls himself the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. He doesn't try to cash in on his relationships, his blood relationship. Well, actually not literal blood, but uh, I guess so. They had the same mother. I should have planned that better. But uh, didn't try to cash in on his, his literal family relationship to Jesus, but instead considered himself the, the servant of Jesus. Now, the purpose of this letter, why this letter was written was, according to verses 3 and 4, because we need to contend for the faith. We need to fight for the truth. So without any further delay, we're going we're gonna to look through the entire book of Jude. Don't worry, it's all one chapter. Uh, but let's start with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The, uh, the way it's said in the King James Version is, the faith once delivered for the saints. It says, For certain individuals whose, condemna whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So, few things about that. The word contend is a word that literally means to wrestle, fight. It's, it's an athletic term. So he's saying, get down in the mud and fight for the truth of the gospel. 
because it's worth fighting for. And then when he talks about the faith, he's talking specifically about the doctrines passed down by the apostles themselves. Remember, there was one time in human history where there were apostles. There, there will never be apostles again unless God does something unexpected. Apostles were people who had been with Jesus and had been appointed by him to take the message of the gospel to the world. And so when an apostle spoke, it was considered authoritative because he'd been with Jesus. That's why when the early church in about three or 400 was trying to figure out, okay, what books, there's all these books floating around. We're going to talk about a couple of those in this study tonight. A lot of these books floating around uh, that claim to be authoritative, which ones are we going to include in the canon of Scripture? One of the key factors was, was this written by an apostle or someone who got their testimony from an apostle like Luke or Mark? If it wasn't written by one of those two categories, if it was just written by some stranger or they didn't know who wrote it, then it wasn't included. And so uh, apostleship was a big deal. Now, back to that term, the faith. The faith. He's talking about fighting for truth. He's talking about the core doctrines. He's not talking about fight over every little disagreement. See, there's, there's two themes they're all through the New Testament when it comes to the church. Every book, and I, I, I think I can say this truthfully. I, you, you can do some study and maybe prove me wrong, but I believe every book in the New Testament has both of these themes whenever it talks about the church. And one is that God wants his church to be unified. He wants us to love one another. Jesus talked about it the night before he died. He wants us to be of one mind. Paul kept saying that over and over again. He wants us to be the body of Christ and for every part of the body to respect the rest of the body, right? Unity is very important to God. On the other hand, watch out for false teaching. Have no tolerance for false teaching. Well, how do you make those two things work? Because if you go too hard on one of those, if all you care about is unity, then you're never going to confront someone when they need to be told the hard truth. And you're going to allow all kinds of false teaching and all kinds of, of unbiblical behavior because, well, we don't want to disturb the unity of God's church. But on the other hand, if you're just out there hunting heresy, and there are some Christians who that's what they've styled themselves as, I'm out to get heretics. And so anything they hear that seems the slightest bit uh, something they hadn't thought of themselves, then it's obviously heresy. And they, they ruin people's careers. They ruin people's reputations. They divide churches because, okay, you said something I disagree with. Well, is that a core doctrine of the church? Well, it's important to me. So the only way to make this work is to say, okay, I know nothing except Christ crucified. I love you because you are my brother or sister in Christ. If I disagree with you, I'm going to ask the question, are we disagreeing about something that is key, that is core to the truth of the Scriptures? Is the gospel at stake here? Right? So my classic example that I go to again and again is, if you have an opinion about the end of the world that's different than my opinion about the end of the world, we can still worship together as long as your opinion about the end of the world includes the fact that Jesus is coming back and will rule after judging the living and the dead. Virtually anything else is on the table as long as you and I agree on that fact, right? But you and I don't need to part just because you believe this about Revelation, I believe that. We don't need to. It's okay. We can worship together. There are lots of things like that that Christians divide over. Now, this is just my little sermonette. It's not out of the book of Jude. But I need to say that because the rest of this book is going to come hard after false teaching. 
And you need to be aware that you can, you can't, you've got to read that in the the broader context of scripture and know that yes, God wants us to attack false teaching and and get rid of it, but he also wants us to be gracious and kind and, and, and build unity within the body of Christ. Okay, so he says... These men, these, these individuals, and I love this, whose condemnation was written about long ago. He makes no secret. They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, which is a, a, another way of saying, and Jude is very eloquent, by the way. It's another way of saying they use false teaching to justify sin. They make it sound like things that the, the Word of God forbids are actually okay. That's their false teaching, a permissiveness. And that's a common false teaching. To look at the Bible and say, I know that you think the Bible says that these behaviors are wrong, but I'm here to tell you, nah, we can, we can leave that. That's, a, that's outdated. That's outmoded. That, that's obsolete. That is one way that false teaching infiltrates the church. And he says, they deny Jesus Christ. Which, if you read 1 John, you know that is the definition of Antichrist. Antichrist is not, in the scriptures, is not a person, it is a concept. It's the idea that, yeah, I know Jesus lived, but he wasn't a real human. Or I know that Jesus was a real human, but he wasn't actually God. Denying the humanity or the divinity of Jesus Christ is Antichrist. So, that's the first four verses. That's the the setup. Now he says in verse 5, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. All right, now here's where we get to see if I'm any good at teaching the Bible. Because Jude says, though you already know this, he's talking to first century people. He's not talking to 21st century Americans. Because he's giving three examples of what can go wrong when a person wanders from the faith. And when he wrote these words 2,000 years ago, the people he wrote them to knew exactly what he was talking about with all three examples. Today, we know two out of three. But the middle one is a little bit of a mystery to us. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know about the people who rebelled against God and Moses in the desert after after escaping from Egypt. But that middle one where he says angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, he's he's now keeping them in darkness, bound for uh, with everlasting chains for judgment. What on earth does that mean? Now, I'll tell you a theory, and, and you see that there's a scripture... Uh, there, Genesis 6-4, that's not part of Jude. So, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When you read Genesis, and you get to Genesis 6, and there's this one verse that just sort of sticks out. Genesis 6-4, and I'll read it for you. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Let me chase this rabbit for a minute. There are biblical scholars who look at that and say, all that's talking about is that there were men who weren't followers of God, who intermingled and intermarried with women who believed in God. And God was displeased at that because he doesn't like when that happens. And that's all that Genesis 6-4 is about. There are others who look at that and say, no, it's obvious from the context 
That's talking about fallen angels. That's talking about angels who came down to earth and took the form of human men and procreated with human women and produced this, uh, this super race of people, the Nephilim. Now, that's definitely the more interesting of the two possibilities, and so a lot of people uh, you know, gravitate toward it for that reason. There are others who say, no, that's way too fantastical. That, that's, that couldn't be true. I wouldn't bet my life on either one, but I tend to lean toward the fallen angel theory, and I'll tell you why. Verse 7 has a clue. It says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, perversion there is a word that literally means different flesh. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, the different flesh was men with men. That's not what God intended, and therefore it was a sign of how far off track those cities had gone. So what he's saying is, in a similar way. So how were Sodom and Gomorrah similar to the, to the fallen angels he's talking about? Well, one way it could be is that Genesis 6-4 is talking about angels who came down and had children with human men. Again, I wouldn't bet my life on this, but that's what it seems to be saying. And regardless, even if I'm totally wrong, and that interpretation is totally false, the point remains. When you rebel against the will of God, you experience terrible consequences. Because no matter who these fallen angels were and what they did, the fact remains that because they rebelled against the authority of God, they are now bound in chains waiting for the day of judgment. Okay? So, verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people, now he's back to the false teachers, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Again, very mysterious what, what Jude is talking about here. But first, let's look at what he's saying. He, he's talking about the false teachers and he's making three accusations against them, three things he has against them. First, they pollute, the, they pollute their own bodies. In other words, they use their bodies to commit sin. They teach that it's okay to do what God's word says is wrong. And that could be any number of things, but from the context it sounds like it's sexual sin. It sounds like they're giving people permission to uh, use sexuality in a way that God forbids in His Word. They reject authority. I assume that means they're rejecting the authority of the apostles. They're saying, I don't care what, what uh, John says, I don't care what Peter says, I don't care what Paul writes, and I don't care what any of the apostles say, I'm going to do what the Lord has laid on my heart because I'm just as smart as they are. I have just as much authority as they do. The third accusation is they heap abuse on celestial beings. They disrespect spiritual beings. Now, what on earth does that mean? I don't know. But the example he gives is very interesting. He, he quotes a story, he refers to a story that's never, not found anywhere in the Bible, that after Moses died, the devil and the archangel Michael had an argument over his body. Again, that is not in the Bible. 
It is in a book, an ancient book called The Assumption of Moses, which I, full disclosure, have never read, have never even seen. It's not part of Scripture. Please hear me. There were lots of books like that floating around in the ancient world. The fact that Jude is referring to a story out of one of them does not mean that that book is all true. It simply means that Jude, with the authority of an apostle, says, hey, this story's true. I don't care where you read it, I know it's true. Apparently there was a time when the devil wanted the body of Moses. We can assume why, maybe to set it up as an object of worship, and an idol. And the archangel Michael was dispatched by God to defend that body and to keep it from the devil's hands. The point that Jude is making is that when Michael faced the devil, he didn't rely on his own power. He called on the power of Almighty God. Even though he is an archangel, even though he has greater power than any human can imagine, he said, I don't have enough power for this. I need the power of God. His authority was rooted in God's power. I think the point is to contrast with these false teachers who think they have enough power on their own, who rely on their own strength. Now, what does it mean to heap abuse on celestial beings? I wouldn't pro profess to understand that completely, but it, it appears to mean these men are too proud of their own strength and they inflate their own sense of power. I do need to say this before we go on. Michael, I'm sorry, Jude is talking about a specific kind of false teacher in this book. But there are all kinds of false teachers. Then and now. Some are like these. They use, uh, they pervert the word of God to justify their own sins. To, to make certain things that are in the scriptures banned permitted. Because it's more convenient. Others twist God's word to draw attention to themselves and gain a following for themselves. These are, these are what you would call cult leaders who say, I have the truth. Only I have the truth. Listen to me. Don't go to those other churches. Listen to me. If you leave this church, you've lost salvation. And then, and then, there are teachers that if you listen to them uh, Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon, you'd never find anything they say that is doctrinally incorrect. It's not that their teaching is false. It's that their lives are false. It's not that they say anything that's untrue. It's that they themselves do not bear the fruit of a preacher of the gospel. They do not bear the fruit of Jesus Christ. They are abusers. They are evil men who preach the truth but hurt people with it. That is also a form of false teaching. All right? So be aware. Those men, those teachers, those women for that matter, are still out there. And we need to be aware of them. Verse 11. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, we probably all know the story of Cain, the first murder in human history. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because he was jealous. Why was he jealous? Because God accepted Abel's offering instead of Cain's. Why did God accept Abel's offering instead of Cain's? When I was a little boy, I thought that was totally unfair, even though I would never have said that out loud. And then I grew up and I read Hebrews, and Hebrews says that Abel brought a good offering. He brought an acceptable offering before the Lord. In other words, Abel brought something God wanted. 
He had a true heart of worship, whereas Cain, Cain wanted to manipulate God with what he had. So the, him referencing Cain is a way of saying man-made religion does not please the Lord. You may, you may offer something up to the Lord that you think is good, but if you, don't ha if you have yourself in, in mind instead of the Lord's glory, it's not a fitting offering. So that second story, Balaam. What we know about Balaam is that he had a talking donkey. Of course, it only talked once, but that's the part of the story we remember. And it's a funny part. But there's another part of Balaam's story that is not so funny. Numbers 31, 16 tell us that he was the one who advised the Midianites later on to send their women to Israel to seduce the Israelite men and to seduce them into idolatrous worship. And that was Israel's downfall. So again, he's saying these, that's what these false teachers are doing. They are seducing the people of God with error, just like Balaam did. And then Korah. This is not as well known a story, but Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were three men who during the Exodus rebelled against Moses, tried to lead the children of Israel back to Egypt, and were swallowed alive. So these are the three examples he gives of that. This is, this is what these men are like. Now, he gets really eloquent in this next section. These people are, are blemishes at your love feast, eating, without, eating with you without the slightest qualm, qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. It's beautiful language. What does it say? First of all, the term love feast. That's not a term we use in the church today. But remember in the early church, Sunday was a day of work. It was not a day of worship for most of the world. So at the end of a work day, or at the beginning, whenever the, the church could gather, they would eat a meal together. You can imagine. You've been working in the field or working in the marketplace all day. You're hungry. You probably haven't had a meal all day. The church would gather and they would eat a communal meal. They called it the love feast. And as part of that love feast, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's saying these people are blemishes on your love feast. Some people call the, or some, some translators translate that hidden reefs like, if you're, you're coming into the coast in a boat and you don't see a reef there and it, it, it punches a hole in the bottom of your boat. They are shepherd. The, the rest of these are, are all images that describe promise without payoff. So a shepherd who only feeds himself. You can imagine if you're a sheep and you see the shepherd and you think, oh, good, we're going to get fed. And then he just sits down and eats a Big Mac and doesn't give you anything, right? Um, they're clouds without rain. Anybody who's ever lived in a farming community knows. Everybody gets excited when you see dark clouds coming, and then they just blow right over. And there's, there's something really heartbreaking about that when you've been praying and praying for rain. Autumn trees without fruit. The trees were supposed to bear fruit in the autumn. So you see an autumn tree, and you think, okay, good, and then no fruit comes. Wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars. What is that? Uh, you remember in the ancient world, if you were out on the sea, you did your navigation by the stars, but you had to be able to tell the difference between a planet and a star because planets move and stars don't. He's talking about planets here. He's saying, don't, don't, don't try to judge your navigation on a wandering star. You'll end up somewhere you didn't want to go. Again, all of these are images of what happens when you follow a false teacher. Verse 14 says, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about them, 
See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Holy Spirit, do not have the Spirit. Enoch is someone who lived in the time of Genesis. You read about him in the book of Genesis very, very briefly. All it says about him was that he was, as Jude says, the seventh from Adam. He lived, he walked with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. It's one of those stories that's just tantalizing with the lack of detail. What happened to him? Why did God take him? Why didn't he take anybody else? Where is he now? All those questions. Jude here quotes him. Where does he get that quote from? Again, there was a book of Enoch floating around in the ancient world. Early church looked at it and said, that's nice, but it's not scripture. And yet Jude quotes it here. So let me say again, just because Jude quotes this one sentence does not mean the whole book of Enoch is true. Don't run out to your bookstore or get on Amazon and order the book of Enoch and say, okay, I'm going to read this book and it's going to teach me things about God that I otherwise wouldn't know. That's not the way it works. The Bible is all you need. If you're a scholar and you want to study Enoch just for scholarly uh, reasons, then, you know, good on you. As long as you know, this is scripture and Enoch is not. But that one sentence, Jude, as an apostle, was able to look at it and say, yeah, Enoch actually said that. Somehow the words of Enoch passed down through the centuries orally and someone wrote them down and Jude was like, okay, the Holy Spirit tells me Enoch really said that. What is he saying? You know, instead of getting caught up in all this mystery and, and weirdness, what is Jude saying that Enoch was saying? Enoch was saying, there are going to be false teachers. There are going to be people who are going to say terrible things and lead people astray. And then here's another crazy example, or not crazy, but here's another uh, example of something that's a little different. Verse 18, when he says, the apostles said to you, and then he gives a quote, that quote is not found anywhere in any of the writings of any of the apostles in the Bible which tells us that in the first century, there were things that the apostles had said that were never written down anywhere else. But the people who lived back then knew them because they passed it around. This is one of those. It's sort of like when, when Peter says, you remember when Jesus told us it's better to give than receive? Well, Jesus never said, any, never said that in any of the four Gospels, but he obviously said it or Paul wouldn't have quoted it. And if you love the Bible, if you love God, you love his word, that, that gives you a competing set of emotions. On the one hand, you're like, golly, I wish we had all that stuff. I wish we knew all the things the apostles said. I wish we knew all the things Jesus said and did. But on the other hand, you have to stop, step back and say, yeah, but God knew what we needed. He gave us exactly what we needed. If we had needed all those teachings and all those stories, he would have preserved them for us. And... For those of you who really love learning, I've got some really good news for you. We'll get to learn that stuff in heaven, right? We'll get to sit at the feet of Peter and Paul and, and, and James and John and, and Jude and Jesus. We'll get to hear all those stories and hear all those sayings. So that's exciting. That ought to get you excited. 
The point is, I'm afraid you're going to remember all, all the stuff I just said instead of the point of Jude, which is there will always be false teaching. Until Christ returns, there will always be false teaching. There will always be apostasy. There will always be people turning away, people who seem to be real believers and then walk away. There will, always, there will be people who uh, seem to be anointed. That's the term we prefer these days, anointed preachers. What we mean by that is, boy, they get results. When he preaches, man, my heart feels on fire. But when you stop and listen to him, wait, he's not, he's not telling the full truth. He's telling part of the truth, but then this other thing he said isn't true at all. Well, then God's word is clear. You're to reject the whole thing, right? You don't, you don't tolerate that. No matter how good looking, no matter how eloquent, no matter how, how many results he gets, no matter how big his church grows or, or how many followers he has on social media or podcast listens, you know, if it's not true, don't listen to it. If it's not true, don't allow it into your church. Beware. Verse 20. Now, all that, after all of that, he finally gets down to, here's what you're supposed to do. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So, four things. First, build yourself up in the faith. Keep yourself in God's love. Why do we take vitamins? Right? As if in a physical sense, I, I've taken vitamins a long time. I've never once uh, taken a vitamin and then instantly felt better. I've never, you know, eaten a salad and just walked away and thought, oh man, I can feel my... I can feel my cholesterol lowering. It's, it's amazing. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but when you do these kinds of things over and over again, you go see your doctor again. He's like, well, what you been doing? I like it. Keep it up. In the same way, the things we do to get close to the Lord, going to church on Sundays, spending time in his word daily, um, you know, fellowshipping with believers, using your gifts, praying, fasting, whatever God leads you to do, those things... Most of the time you do those things, you don't walk away saying, my life has just been changed. But they, they accumulate. They build up. They prepare you. They prepare you to resist the evil one. They equip you to recognize what is false. If you're in the Word, you'll know when someone's preaching heresy, no matter how eloquent they are, no matter how many other people are running to them and saying they're the latest, greatest thing. If you're in the Word, then you'll recognize He's not speaking truth. He says, snatch other, I'm sorry, be merciful to those who doubt. That's, that's verse 22. There's a lot of Christians that don't seem to know that verse 22 is in the Bible. Jude 22, be merciful to those who doubt. When you come across somebody who's struggling in their faith, they are not less loved by God than you. They're not a lesser Christian than you. Remember when we talked a few weeks ago about John the Baptist in prison? Asking Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we look for another? Do you think you're a better Christian than John the Baptist? Of course not. Almost all of us will go through times of doubt. So show mercy to those who doubt. The worst thing to do is to hammer them for their doubts. 
Uh, some of you know who Eugene Peterson was. He's, among other things, he's the one who did the, the message. The, uh, not a, it's not a translation, but a, a paraphrase of Scripture. Uh, but he pastored for a long, long time, Presbyterian minister. And he had a woman came to his church. And she was, uh, in words that old-time Christians would use, she was living in sin. And she was an unbeliever. And there were people in his church that said, you know how this woman is living. You know what she's doing. And he said, yeah, but she's coming to our church. Let's, let's, let, her, let's let her explore. And she went to that church for over a year, every Sunday. And boy, for a long time, people would go, oh, God, I can't believe she's here. I can't believe, I, aren't we going to say something? And after over a year, she started coming to the pastor and asking questions. Again, he let her ask questions about Scripture. And eventually, she came and said, I think I believe this. He said, okay, what does that mean for the way you live? Well, what do you mean? What is there in your life that isn't consistent with someone who follows Jesus? And that's when he started to address her lifestyle. He was merciful to the one who doubted. He, he saw, okay, what's important is this person's soul. And God will deal with the rest when we get the soul saved. Yeah. Remember that, okay? Remember that. That's not what we as Christians are known for, but we should be. He says, snatch others from the fire. On the other hand, sometimes we have to act urgently. Sometimes we see a brother or sister headed down the wrong road, and we need to be what other, we need to do things and say things that otherwise would seem incredibly rude. But there's no time to be nice. There's no time to be patient. We have to get in their face. We have to, you know, verbally or physically slap them around and say, okay, you need to get right. Uh, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you, you need to take a risk and, and think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to this person. I'm going to say these words, and either they're never going to speak to me again or they're going to come back to Christ. But I can't live with myself if I don't say something. You've got to snatch people out of the fire sometimes. That's not something I'm good at. I'll just, I'll just tell you right out. Whenever those situations come up, uh, my tendency, my, my, my sin nature says, oh, let somebody else do it. I got your six. Man. You got it. You got it. Thank you. But you know, God is God is teaching me boldness, and I've had more of those kinds of conversations. Maybe because I'm around so many sinful people. Not around it really, but uh, just God is teaching me. And I think there's a lot of you who also are on that same journey. You know, there are hard conversations that need to be had, and it's time to do it. It's time to step up. Then he says to others, show mercy mixed with fear, and sometimes. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes we have to recognize that it's dangerous to help certain people. That helping some people can lead us into temptation. And we should be aware of the difference between influencing someone and being influenced by someone. When he says, hating the garment stained by the flesh, it's a, it's a picture of a caretaker who's helping a sick person, but they're careful not to, not to wear that person's coat home, right? Or... or wrap themselves in that person's blanket. Why? Because they don't want to get what that person has. They're caring for the sick person, but in such a way that they're, they're careful not to get sick themselves. And that's an important, that's an important thing. You know, if, if, for instance, if you struggle with alcoholism, ministry in a, in a saloon probably isn't for you, right? Uh, I, I knew a guy, this is a true story, pastor of a church. He was at a a uh, gas station one night, pumping gas. I, I think I've got this story right, so don't quote me on all the details. But 
He was pumping gas, and he heard the sound of someone crying. And he looked around, and on the other side of the pump, there was a, a young woman who was also pumping gas, and she was crying. So he asked her what was wrong. She told him. He said, do you mind if I pray for you? She said, no. He prayed. After he prayed for her, she thanked him very much, and he, he told her he was a pastor, invited her to his church. She started coming to the church. When After a while, she came to him and she said, you know, there's a lot of women where I work who really need to, y'all need to reach out to them too because they're just as messed up as I am and they need to be here. And he said, well, where do you work? And she said, Hooters. <laughs> so the pastor said, I'm going to get some women to start a ministry with these young waitresses. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get some women to do it. And in fact, that became a, a, a real outreach for that church. But he recognized, that's not the ministry that I should be doing. That's wisdom. And that's what Jude is telling us to do. Now here's how he closes. Verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Jude wanted to write about salvation, and that's what he gets to at the end. The salvation that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. But unfortunately, what he had to talk about instead was false teaching. So he ends with this reminder of our hope in Christ. And this is the best news. The best thing you'll hear all day is that sentence, or that phrase. He will present you without fault before his glory. And so when you think about heaven... We get caught up in all the physical aspects of heaven and, and what are we going to eat and what are we going to do. The best part, other than the fact that we'll be in the presence of Christ, is he will present us to himself without fault. And so anything you feel shame about, any part of yourself where, you're, where you think, I don't measure up, it's all going to be fixed. And you will be without fault. You will be a radiant bride, Right? God's church, Christ's church will be a radiant bride, according to Ephesians 5, presented to himself in, in, in all of its beauty. And that is very, very good news. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are a righteous and gracious Savior. And we pray, Lord, that we would honor and glorify you. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for its truth. Help us to know it well enough that we won't be deceived by that which is false. And I pray that at all times and in every way, we would help people to overcome false teaching and avoid the, the lies the world throws at us and to stick with the truth that sets people free. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.